The lies of the wicked make a religion out of everything. Romans 14 is there to stop us Christians from following their lead and making a religion out of everything that is not our religion. There are places in Romans 14 where if you take it by itself, you would get the idea we're never supposed to argue, we're never supposed to disagree, we're supposed to let everybody do whatever they want. But that that is not the point. The point is that we are to care deeply about those things that the Bible has revealed to be eternally true and defend them up to the point of giving our life for them. And then everything else, no matter how much we care about it, we're not supposed to care about it that much. We're not supposed to care about it to the point where we would make an enemy out of a brother in Christ over these things that are not eternal. And in the text itself, the examples that will be given are food and wine. But immediately, like before we talk about food and wine, we have to recognize that this really isn't about food and wine at all for these early Christians. I did a little research this week, and I did find out that vegetarianism does have an ancient history. It was not really ever popular, but you can find it in cults in the world where it was part of their religion to believe that you can't eat. And by the way, as much as people like the Far Eastern Hindu peace symbol, part of being a Hindu means you don't eat certain kinds of meat. It's religion for them. It's not about this is good for you or bad for you and your health and your heart rate and should you be on this and that. It's not about that. And that's where we really have to step back because for we Americans, food is all about two things. It's all about hedonistic pleasure. I like it. I want more, right? And then it's also all about, well, it's bad for me. I shouldn't have that. It might kill me someday. That's like the categories we think of food in. That's not the category of Romans 14. The category of Romans 14 is that food is part of worship. And so in most ancient Greek cities, if you wanted to buy some meat, you would often go to the market to buy the meat. And at the market where you would buy the meat, there'd be a lot of temples and worship going on around it. And in fact, the meat would probably have been connected to that temple worship before it was being sold at the market. And so you couldn't really get certain kinds of meat, at least, without being connected to idol worship. And that's the question. Can a Christian go and buy a steak at Costco if in the back someone's got a Buddha statue and they offer it to Buddha before they put it on the shelf? And the unequivocal answer from both this text and uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 is, yes, you can. Because it's just food. And the statue is just a statue. And to be sure, there's demons behind the statue, but they're not going to get to you through the food. That's not how the food works. But he also is going to drive home the point that if in doing this, you harm your brother's conscience because he's like, wait, you're worshiping an idol. And you're like, no, I'm not. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Well, you're going to harm your brother. And you've not learned to see that the real value is not whether we eat this or that. The real value of Christianity is learning to love those who you disagree with. Learning to be able to put up with those 
who you disagree with for their good, learning to take up your cross and follow Jesus, learning to why not rather be wronged? It's kind of upside down the way most people think, but this is the ethic of love in Christianity that we would seek the good of the other rather than good of ourselves. Of course, we also live at a time where I think the enemies have figured that out and they've used that against us to bind our consciences in ways that this text should not bind us. And I'll try to touch on that when we get to the issue of alcohol. Although, again, alcohol in the text isn't about drunkenness. There's plenty of places the Bible says don't get drunk. And the word for being drunk in Greek is methane, like methamphetamine, like out of your mind. Don't get out of your mind with alcohol. That's clear, but that's not what this text is about. This text is about wine being offered to idols and then being bought and drunk. Uh, and okay, so there's, there's our introduction here. But now before we get into the text proper, which will begin on page 948 in your pew Bible, if you want to try to find it, page 948, um, we still need to recognize that opening statement I said, that the lies of the wicked will make a religion out of everything. And so today, indeed, you do find uh, veganism particularly being very religious about food. You find the Seventh-day Adventist church body that began in the 18th, 1800s with a prophetess named Ellen White. They began under her not as Trinitarian, and they became Trinitarian, so many people give them a pass now. But the reason they're called Seventh-day Adventists is because they believe that certain days are better for worship than others. In fact, you must worship on Saturday, and if you worship on Sunday, you are participating in the mark of the beast and are going to go to hell. So in that way, I would say they're kind of leaving Christianity behind, whether they know it or not. They also, based on the prophecies of Ellen White, believe that eating meat is the cause of sexual immorality. And so in order to get rid of sexual immorality, you need to stop eating meat. And this is important not only that for them, but for the entire world. And so, whether you know it or not, they have a massive globalist, money-powered lobbying organization that works with governments to encourage them to not eat meat. They spend a lot of money on this every year. You can go check it out. It's crazy. Most vegans don't know they're Seventh-day Adventists but they are. You'll hear them say things like, I won't eat anything that has a face or a mother. Yes, that's what Ellen White said. That's her quote. Okay, so food is religious out there somewhere in the world. That's the point. There's a lot of other things we make religion out of. And the way you know you're making a religion out of it is if somebody disagrees with you about it, if you get angry. So someone disagrees with you about, oh, what can I think of that isn't a hot topic? I don't know. Bears versus card Cardinals. That's, that's not even the way it works, is it now? Um, bears versus Packers. Uh, no one really gets too angry about that. Yeah. But I don't know. Uh, Black Lives Matter. You know, again, I mentioned critical race theory. When you see our politicians raging in the street, oh, here's a good one. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren, a long-term senator, raging in the street at reporters about these evil pro-life pregnancy centers tricking women into having babies. We need to shut those down, she said. I think you know it's not about politics now. It's about her religion. Yeah. And again, all evil people, that is all those who are not in Christ, all those who have not had their religion regenerated by the he is risen, 
all who have not been regenerated by the good news of Jesus' resurrection inevitably make a religion out of almost everything that they do. And the more you can see this, the more you can see that most of these stores and most of these banks and most of these restaurants for many people are their religion, the more it's going to make sense how crazy it's gotten and why. They're just following different spirits than you do. All right, let's, let's get into the text here and see what we can find. Uh, 14 verse 1, uh, one more piece. Remember, this is at the end of the book of Romans. We've been told very clearly that we are justified by grace through faith alone, that the regeneration of the Spirit comes by the power of the Word that has awakened you to life, has washed you in His name, and made you one who sees your sin but hates your sin, and so wants to live for that life which is to come, knowing there is now no condemnation for you who are in Jesus Christ, and that all things are working out for your good because you are the elect. How do you know that? Again, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. You know this to be true, so you have to be elect. Nobody who believes this is not elect, and so you're elect. Therefore, you can trust that, again, all these things are moving toward a point in time where it will all be made righteous forever. In the meantime, you are to present yourself daily before God as one who worships him by not needing to get your own way in this life since you know that great life is coming soon. In chapter 13 last week, we saw this leads to the law of love, which summarizes all the laws. It doesn't replace the laws. You love your neighbor by not murdering him. You love your neighbor by not sleeping with his wife. You love your neighbor by not stealing his stuff. Love is the point of all of those other things. And now that's going to continue here. What about things that aren't commanded, right? So 14 verse 1 says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, the idea of being weak in the faith uh, means that this person's conscience is still tied to what they do. Now, I'd be willing to go out on a limb and say that most of us modern Christians are still pretty weak in the faith. I'll admit that I still have trouble where I do something and something bad happens and I think God's punishing me. Okay, I literally just had this happen the last couple of weeks. I was like, God's punishing me. Why is he doing this? Right? So I, I immediately begin to get into this like works righteousness. If I do it right, I'll get a glorious life. If I do it wrong, I'll get a bad life. That's to be weak in the faith. Okay. When you're weak in the faith, you tie God's love for you to what you do. Now, Paul says, that's okay. It's not ideal. It's not good. It's not what we want. We're not trying to move toward being weaker in the faith, but you're a Christian. And so he says to you who are not weak in the faith, who know, you got no problem. Jesus is on your side. You really don't question your faith anymore at all. Welcome that person. And then try to see the building up of that confidence, that faith in Christ as the primary goal of everything that we do together in the church. Welcome that person in order to build them up in the knowledge of what the Bible actually says. Not to get into debates about, oh, what? Green energy, affordable housing, the Second Amendment. All things which have purpose, they do matter. It's not like science is bad. But it should not divide those of us who have a greater thing than mere science a greater thing than mere renewable resources. We have the almighty God himself 
having bled and died on a cross as the once for all atoning sacrifice for our sins so that even if a global food shortage comes about as a result of too much fossil fuel usage, which I don't know about that, but if that were the thing that were to cause it, and we were all to die of a horrific starvation, we can do it singing hymns and trusting in the resurrection of the dead. See, the others, they have to scream and cry and shout and yell because they can't do that. They can't let go. I'm not saying go kill yourself, go die on purpose. No, it's what is the Lord going to give? Receive it. Receive it with confidence. And that's, again, to become more strong in the faith. So together, recognizing that we are weak and strong at various times, that all of us are are on our own journey, that one who stands might slip up and fall and need to be restored again, we are to welcome each other in order to focus on those things which we know to be true because the Bible says so, rather than to get into debates over those things that might be true. It doesn't mean we can't talk about them. It means we're not to divide ourselves over them. Okay? So, he's going to get specific here in verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. All right. So, uh, two things here. Right away, we're into the worship with food situation. We're not talking about modern nutritional theory that didn't exist. Okay, We're talking about worship. So, they're doing this as a spiritual act, maybe like the Hindu teaches. They didn't believe that killing an animal was good, that they believe somehow they can live without death, which is crazy because even the vegetable, the the, the plant has got to die. Death is part of food, no matter how you spin it. Uh, But in any case, the point is about the religious aspect. And notice how the one who is strong, not weak, believes he can eat anything. That's because, as Paul says later, no food is unclean. No food is unclean. Now, that doesn't mean you can eat a deep-fried bit of ice cream smothered in soy oil every single day and be healthy, because that's not what he's talking about. He doesn't care about if you're healthy. Now, he does. If Paul were in your life and he knew you were sick, he might say, have a little wine with your stomach so that you, with your meal with your stomach, it'll help you digest. That's what he says to Timothy, okay? So it's not like he doesn't care, but it's not a religious thing for him. But this that he's talking about is about religious things. And if somebody is tied then in their Christian religion to practices that aren't really Christian, he wants us to bear with them rather than condemn them, to pull them into the certainty of all things are clean and out of the uncertainty of those things are unclean for me, but to do so not by lording it over them and shoving it in their face. Yeah. So he says in verse 3, let not the one who eats, that is the meat offered to idols, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Huh? I mean, do you want to be a vegetarian? You can come to St. Paul Lutheran Church. Do you want to be a carnivore? I am. You can come to St. Paul Lutheran Church. We don't need to hate each other over these things, even though we might vehemently disagree about the science of the matter. It should not divide us because we have a higher reality than merely am I healthy or not? Yes. 
Who are you, verse 4, to pass judgment on the servant of another? The idea here is Jesus is the one in charge of all of this. Jesus is the judge. And he has not put anything about, again, green energy or equitable housing in the Bible. Rather, he has put words about how to treat your neighbor directly. He hasn't put anything in the Bible about democracy or republicanism or uh, any other kind of communism. It's not in the Bible. What he's put in the Bible is commands about how to be a good person where you are, how to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I, I mentioned communism. I don't want to get off the track. There are religious elements to communism that you really do need to be aware of. If you know the name C.F.W. Walther, he was the founder of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and he wrote an entire tract on the evils and dangers of communism to Christianity. There's no question that the Soviet Union and the CCP had done more to destroy Christianity in their countries since the rise of communism than just about any other government ever has. So we need to see that. But, you know, Marx's theory about capital, again, whatever, that's really how we should approach it a little bit when we're talking about what? He is risen. Alleluia. Is capitalism better? I mean, have that conversation, but don't get religious about it. That's the point. All right. Because for each of you, it is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he, that's the master. That's Jesus. Oh, sure. I'm wrong. And he, that's you. He will be, you will be upheld for the Lord, that's Jesus, is able to make him, that's you, stand. Right? So no matter how you might have an opinion about this, that, or the other thing that's a hot topic of the day, no matter whether or not you're going to follow the crowd or not follow the crowd, stand apart or stand with, Jesus is your God, and he's able to bring you through it all. And so we ought to treat each other, not as if that's true, but because that is true, treat each other in a way showing that we are different from the rest of the world. Now, here you see it gets into the religion of the Sabbath a little bit. Uh, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. It's not wrong to worship on Saturday. If we all want to decide, we already got a Saturday service, four o'clock, join us anytime. If we all decide we're only going to worship on Saturday at St. Paul Lutheran Church, nothing wrong with that. The problem of the Seventh-day Adventists isn't that they worship on Saturday, it's that they say you have to. And if you don't, you're not a Christian. And the moment they say that, they've just gone against this text. We don't say you have to worship on Sunday. Sunday is just like the oldest tradition that Christianity has. Like from the very beginning, they met again on Sunday. And so it's been there forever because on Sunday he is risen. Alleluia. <laughs> and so you see in Revelation chapter 1, St. John calls it the Lord's Day. Because it's the day that the Lord Jesus Christ took from the devil the power of death and gave us the power of resurrection. That's why we meet on Sunday. We don't have to. And, you know, we don't have to celebrate Christmas on December 25th. It's only about 16, 1700 years old as a tradition. It's really fascinating how they came up with that tradition, too. Some, some goofballs will tell you it's because of like Egyptian religion. They're completely wrong. It has everything to do with 
some math done by a church father, wherein he found out, as he believed, that Jesus died on March 25th. And so since Jesus died on March 25th, that meant that was the day that he was conceived, because everyone knows that the day you die, if you're a prophet, is the day you were conceived in the womb. You, you knew that, right? Like that's common knowledge. It's not common knowledge, but that's what he thought, okay? So March 25th was the day Jesus was conceived, and nine months after March 25th, because it's always nine months of the day, right? Nine months after March 25th, boom, you got December 25th. Hey, it's Christmas, okay. So, so we worship Christmas, or do Christmas on, on December 25th, and I wouldn't think of changing it because we'd all get upset about it, but that's the thing we really want to be able to do. Is be like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, if the world made us worship on December 26th with, at gunpoint, like, okay, like we can do that. It's not going to stop us from being Christians, right? So what day you worship on, again, what you eat, these things are not a matter of Christianity. Can they be a matter of wisdom? I mean, if we were all to decide as St. Paul Lutheran Church to worship at 2 a.m. on Monday morning, would that be wise? No, it would not be wise. It would be very foolish. We would diminish our population significantly by doing that, okay? So it's not like we're throwing wisdom out either. We're just trying to not get religious about things that are not our religion. Can I get uh, what, somebody testify? Amen. Okay, so we can move on then. Um, we left off verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Notice the emphasis here is on life and death and the acceptance of these things. One of the supernatural powers of Christianity is that it enables you to die with confidence. I have not mentioned any of the lies of the last three years in this sermon. I'm avoiding them on purpose, although I think this sermon, this text has so much to say about the things we were told we had to do and must do and continue doing and on and on. But the most important thing about all of it was that it was the fear of dying that drove so many of the actions. And Christians stopped worshiping together because they were afraid of dying. It wasn't just about being wise or two weeks to slow the spread. It was, dear heavens, it's not safe. We can't go out. Christians really don't need to live like that, right? Because whether we live or whether we die, Jesus has us. Does that mean go stand in front of an oncoming truck and don't worry about it? No, jump out of the way of the truck. Just don't be religious about it, yeah? For to this end, verse 9, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. That our entire religion is about how death has been conquered by his death, how captivity has been led captive in his train, how the grave, as it could not contain him, neither shall it contain you. And so you have a freedom to act with confidence that God is for you, not against you. And even the worst thing that could possibly happen to you will not be the worst thing, but will work out for your eternal, eternal good. Yes. And so because you know this, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother over, again, things that are not this? Or why do you despise your brother? 
For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, as it is written, and he quotes the Old Testament here, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So, so, so why are you so worried about how much sugar your brother's got in his diet or not? Why are you so worried about how much fat your brother's got in his diet or not? I mean, look, at a point you might say to your brother, look, my friend, you weigh 500 pounds. You can't get out of bed anymore. Would you like some help? That's different than saying, how dare you? How could you become like this? You see the difference, right? The difference is mercy. And we are to be a people of mercy. Yeah. All right, so let's see. I think with the time we have left here, we're going to skip that. We're going to skip that, and we're going to jump up to verses 13 and 14. Therefore, he says in verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know that I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So again, there is no religious component to general dietary principles anymore. When you were a Jew, there was. You couldn't eat certain things. Pigs, most especially, and most kind of infamously, right? But now, that's been declared abrogated. It's all fulfilled in Christ. So, so no food is unclean, but that doesn't mean that I should go take a piece of bacon and wave it under the nose of my neighbor who's a Jew. Ha, 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 look what I can do. That's the wrong approach. We are not to put stumbling blocks under others. That is, we want others to see what we believe about Christ as good. And we want them, to, want them to see what we believe about everything else as under Christ and moving toward a certainty of the resurrection. And so again, if there is a Christian who is weak, that is, they believe too deeply in their theories about the world, and so they're bothered by what you do. Let's get to alcohol. There are the Baptists who are bothered by anyone who has a drink, although most modern Baptists don't worry about it anymore. But, but you know, once upon a time, and for sure there are some, if you have one sip of alcohol, even at the Lord's Supper, you are drinking the demon's juice. What do we do about this person now? The Baptist will come to you and say, don't put a stumbling block in front of me. Don't drink in front of me, because if you do, you're, you're disobeying Romans 14. Interestingly, he's putting a stumbling block in front of you and ignoring his need to bear with you, according to Romans 14. He's claiming to be weak while acting like the one who is strong. And so, again, it makes it a bit difficult to just do what the passage says. But now let's talk about in the local congregation, you have someone who was a Baptist who wants to be a Lutheran. They're taking the Lord's Supper now. They're, they're part of our community, but they still struggle with this. They're like, oh, that alcohol thing is a little weird. I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't know. Like, well, then don't go have three right in front of them. Oh, come on. It's okay. Join me. It, 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 you know, take it easy is the idea here. Take it easy as you exercise your freedom. The idea is not give up your freedom. Paul never says don't live in your freedom. 
He says, live in your freedom, but with your eye on the one near you, so as not to hurt them with your freedom. Yeah. And in this then, trying not to make others stumble is a great goal. Again, what I bring up the Baptist for is because we live at a time where it has become commonplace for others to try to use this text to take away your freedom. And at some point, you have to say, you're trying to take away my freedom. I'm not going to let you. At that point, they're not the weaker brother. Yeah. And again, it gets complicated. Yeah, that calls for wisdom. But the goal here is, especially for those in the community, those who worship here, when you see that they are bothered by your freedom, don't flaunt your freedom. Don't give it up. Don't flaunt it. Don't flaunt it. All right, let's jump over to verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. That's the whole point, right? Let's not talk about what divides us to the point that it divides us. Let's let the stories from far away be the stories from far away. And let's pursue those things that we know unify us in the harmony of the truth of God. Now, remember how I said this could sound like don't hold on to the doctrine. Let people believe whatever they want. Let's just all go along and get along. That's not what it said. We absolutely will and must defend those things which the scripture says to be true. I mentioned uh, Genesis 2 earlier and the idea of evolution and atheistic theory. We must deny that. There is no place for that in the church. Uh, That does not make for peace. It is the devil's attempt to divide us. So we pursue the things that make for peace by pursuing a common mind. Remember last or two weeks ago, uh, chapter 12, a transformed mind. In the word of Jesus, that the scriptures themselves and your knowledge of them, what you just did, going through it verse by verse, is going to transform the way that you think. And we want to pursue that more and more as a people, because as we do, it will be clear to us both what we should do, what we should not worry about, and how we are to engage with wisdom, this world that is around us. Yeah, Pursuing the things that makes for peace, of course, then, kind of bring this to a close means all together, sinners all, kneeling at this altar where this marvelous risen man is about to feed you with his very own flesh and blood, a declaration of peace, a promise of peace, a waving of the flag of truce to say that God who once was your enemy because you were a traitor has bought you back from the slavery auction block and made you a son and ushered you into the kingdom that shall last forever and ever. So again, seek ye first the kingdom. And all these things will be added unto you as well. In the name of Jesus. Amen.